You're listening to the Metro LA Podcast, an official podcast of the LA International Church of Christ. Good morning, brothers and sisters, friends and guests. And first and foremost, I want to say Happy Lunar New Year uh, to those of you that are celebrating uh, Lunar New Year. And especially to my dear friend Tian Vu, I want to say Happy Tet. So Happy Tet, Tian. I hope all is well for you and your family. I'd also like to thank the Carrillos for having me over and your squad group for inviting me to come speak to you all today. It's been a while since I've been back to one of my favorite ministries in the whole wide world, the Metro Heights Ministry. Definitely want to thank the Henleys, my dear friends, Bob and Renita and McLaughlin's, Larry and Latrice, and of course, the Simmons, Darius and Susan A. I've known all those great people for a number of years and very grateful. So the title of my lesson today is Love and Happiness. Actually, it's not love and happiness, it's love and harmony. I always think love and happiness, you know, makes you want to do right, make you do wrong. But the title today is Love and Harmony. And when I first heard the title, my thought was, just as it was this morning, oh, that's the old Al Green tune. But it wasn't. And then my second thought was, hmm, love and harmony. That's kind of an interesting combination. Hadn't really thought about those two together. And then my next thought was, you know, we can have love without harmony, but we can't have harmony without love. So you can give that some thought. I noodled over that a little bit. Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to share with my brothers and sisters, our friends and guests. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for my spiritual family and the opportunity to come share some time with my friends and my brothers and sisters here. I pray the lesson will inspire, convict, urge, challenge and comfort. Be with us through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I thought love and harmony. Well, what is it exactly we're talking about? So I thought we'd start with a few definitions. So first and foremost, love. And in Greek, there are three words for love. Actually, there are about six, but there are three that are primary in the Bible. There's eros, of course, which is more of a romantic love. There's philea, which is like a brotherly love or a friendly love. But then there's agape, the noun or the verb version, agapeo. And that's the love that we're going to talk about today. That's God's attitude toward Jesus and toward us. That's God loving unconditionally. That's what agape or agapeo is all about. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, verses 4 through 8, the Bible gives us a working definition of that kind of love. And see, I'm a little bit old school, so I memorized this verse from the NIV version back in 1984. So I'm going to try to recite it from memory from there. It says, love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And of course, that's a verse as a married man. I've been married, uh, as Larry mentioned, some 37 years to my wife, Kira. I committed that to memory because, as you know, in relationships, it's challenging. You get called to love. And so it's good for me to have a working definition to dial through when I was tempted to be less than loving. So we're talking about love today. And really loving one another deeply from the heart. So that's our definition of love. So let's look at harmony now. Harmony comes from a Greek verb, phrono. 
And there are multiple definitions of harmony today in the English language. One is an arrangement of the four Gospels as a parallel narrative, ironically. So if you lay out Matthew, Mark, Luke and John uh, and you try to match them up in terms of timeline and you look how they harmonize together, that's actually called the harmony of the Gospels. Uh, I've forgotten that, but that's one form of harmony. Typically, we think of harmony between people as an agreement or some kind of concord or concord where they agree. And, and that's harmony. And my wife, who was a musician, reminded me that it's also a musical term and that notes producing chords that are melodic or pleasing to the ear. Uh, that's a harmony. Of course, she played Jackson five. I want you back. And she pointed out the harmony to me. I'm not even going to attempt to do that because I am not a musician. But those are multiple terms for the word harmony. Now, interestingly enough, in the NIV, you see the word harmony in Romans 12, 16. And the Bible says, let us live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. So here it talks about living in harmony. And as you look across the scriptures and you look for this word phrono, uh, which here is translated harmony, the concept you come away with is same mind, to have the same mind with someone about a particular topic or thing. That's the definition of harmony. So I said, okay, well, let's flush this out a little bit more and see what else the Bible says. So again, I went back and said, okay, harmony, phronos, same mind. Let's look at some passages that has this scripture. And so here listed on the screen are several passages I found that use this same root word from Greek. Romans 8, 5, Romans 12, 16, Romans 15, 5, 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Galatians 5, 10, Philippians 1, 7, Philippians 2, 2, 2, 5, Philippians 3, 15, Philippians 3, 19, Philippians 3, I'm sorry, 4, 2, and Colossians 3, 2. So number of passages use this. Not going to look at them all, but I'd encourage you if you want to dig into harmony. Here's some great passages that define what it really means. We're going to look at a couple. First, we're going to look at Romans 15. We're going to look at five through seven to give us a little bit of context. Beginning in verse five, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. There's the phrase attitude of mind toward each other. Note, too, that Christ Jesus had. So now, in addition to saying we need to have harmony, we need to have harmony with Christ. Then it goes on to say, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. So now we're beginning to see the notion of harmony and togetherness. So continuing, and this may be a little tough to read. Hopefully they'll blow it up for me a little here. Uh, harmony again, same root, phrono, same mind, Philippians 2. Therefore, I love this passage. This is great. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, Paul say, if you're in the faith at all, if you have anything in common with us, then make my joy complete by being same mind, like minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Let me stop there. Now we're seeing love and harmony. Notice in the definition of love, it says love is not self-seeking. 
Love is not selfish. So it's saying when you have the same mind, you're not going to be selfish. In other words, you're going to be loving. So when you got harmony, you've got love. In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking for your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mind, there it is, as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but instead he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Now there I mix the new NIV with the old one, but the point is Jesus in his harmony and love, his harmony with God, his harmony for us, his love for God, his love for us. He was obedient and self-sacrificing in that love, even to the point of shedding his blood and giving up his life on the cross. That is a high calling, my brothers and sisters, friends and guests. Let's look at another one. Love the book of Philippians. So Philippians said, you know, Paul said, hey, if you're with us, you should have such a view of things. You need to look at things this same way. So let's look at another passage. Philippians 3 verses 7 through 16. I skip a little bit in the middle here, but here we go. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So there is Paul self-sacrificing, considering loss. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. There I skipped a little bit. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of these things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. So I skipped a couple of verses in there just in the interest of time. But here where I'm going, such a view of things. Paul says he considered it all lost, rubbish, dung. Those are kind of words he used for the sake of Christ. Paul was willing to lay it all down. He was willing to sacrifice for the sake of Christ, because Paul was focused on the resurrection of the dead. Paul was focused on the cross. That was the view. And he calls us to have that same mind and to have that same view. And he says, you know what? That's really how you need to look at things. But if on some point you feel a little different, God will make it clear. Just live up to what you've already attained. Brothers and sisters, friends and guests, let me say how proud of my spiritual family I am and how much I love you. Paul focused on knowing Christ's powers of resurrection. He wanted to make it to heaven. So here's the question. How do we stay focused in heaven on spiritual things when we live here? Okay, just keep it real. We live here. How do we stay focused spiritually? Well, he said, live up to what we've already attained and mature in your view based upon what God makes clear. So, What have we attained and where do we need to go? So let's talk about living up to what we've already attained. I want to talk about an uncomfortable topic. That is race, racism and social justice in the context of love and harmony. Those are uncomfortable topics right now. I'll probably throw abortion in the mix, too, just so you know, because that's uncomfortable as well. But we're going to talk about it today. Race, racism and social justice in the context of love and harmony. 
Why am I talking about these things? First and foremost, hey, it's Black History Month. And last time I checked, I was black. I'm just kidding. But in all seriousness, Dr. Carter G. Woodson, who started Negro History Week, he's a fraternity brother of mine, Omega Psi Phi Fraternity Incorporated, cited about uh, Dr. Woodson and want to give him uh, honor in memory of Black History Month. Uh, it's totally relevant today. If anybody's been paying attention to what's going on in this country, uh, we are dealing with the issue of race, racism and social justice. And not just in our country. It's been globally that there's been an awakening to this. And interestingly enough, the Bible, Jesus himself dealt with these same uncomfortable topics regularly in his ministry, uh, particularly dealing with the Sabbath day taxes to Caesar or not. Forgiveness of sin, racism, Jew versus Samaritan, Jew versus Greek, Greek versus everybody else. Those topics were relevant in Jesus day, just like they're relevant for us now. So what has our church already attained to this point? Where are we at? Let us live up to what we've already attained. Well, let's talk about it. We've evolved over time. First and foremost. So if you think about where we've come from as a branch of the Christian family within our congregations, or you think about where Christianity has come from, from the days of Jesus, we have matured, but we've had ups and downs in our understanding of what it really means to love as Jesus did. Historically, the churches of Christ or our particular movement has struggled with unity over the issue of racism, just as the early church struggled with, can Gentiles be saved? They struggled with that, just like we're struggling today. Alexander uh, Campbell and Barton Stone, they were at the core of something called the Restoration Movement in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And from that eventually sprang the fellowship that we know today as the International Churches of Christ, for those of you listening, welcome. Uh, we're excited that you're with us and just talking a little bit about the history of our particular branch of Christianity. And interestingly enough, Stone and Campbell and their efforts to be righteous, they opposed slavery. They both owned slaves and they set those slaves free. And they came up with ways that fit within their societal context where they could set their slaves free. But interestingly enough, they supported segregation because in their minds they could not fathom that whites and blacks and people of other races would all live together in a community as one. That was beyond them. Yet in their day, the stand they took for against slavery was considered radical by some. Now, interestingly enough, there were other ministers in the restoration movement who supported slavery, even though they were Christian, quote unquote, they were in the restoration movement, but they supported slavery. And then you had those crazy leftist abolitionists they say, y'all crazy. We're opposed to slavery in any form. It's evil and it's wrong. So if you will, for all my engineering friends, live long and prosper, you nerds out there. We had a bell shaped curve distribution of people in terms of where they stood on the issue of slavery back in the late 1700s and early 1800s. You know, the more things change, sometimes the more they stay the same. We have a bell shaped curve today, a distribution of people where we stand on the notion of systemic racism race, class, and culture in this country and around the world. I put that link there in case you want to do a little more research on the uh, Barton Stone, uh, Alexander Campbell, or Restoration Movement. That's a link. Pretty good history. There are other links. I like that particular one. But do your homework. 
So for years following the restoration movement, the churches of Christ were segregated. You had black churches of Christ and you had white churches of Christ. I became a member in 1982. I went to Central Church of Christ in Baltimore, Maryland. That's back when I had a gold tooth, had a C on it. No, I'm just kidding. I like to joke around for those that know me. But in any event, I was a member of Central Church of Christ, was predominantly black. There were a few white folks in our congregation. But to get to Central Church of Christ, I drove past another church of Christ, which predominantly white. They had a few black folks in it, but pretty much largely segregated. And that's kind of how it was. We'd get together at the conferences and the black folks and why, you know, we tried to fellowship a little bit. And if your church had more than 100 baptisms, you were considered really doing something back in that day. I know this is ancient history for many of you. But for those of you who are baby boomers in my generation, you remember, you know what I'm talking about. We were segregated as a movement and that was OK. Then along comes the International Churches of Christ and said, wait a minute, segregated churches That's wrong before God. We need to love one another. We need to practice love. We can't be proud. We can't dishonor one another by discriminating against each other racially. We can't be rude to each other that way. We can't be selfish. We can't hold grudges. That's wrong. We got to hope. We got to persevere. We got to trust. We got to love. To our credit as the International Church of Christ, we were definitely anti-segregationists. And that's awesome. And we worked hard on that. And in that sense, we really had the same mind. And if you look what's happened as a result of, as uh, they like to say, those 30 would be disciples back in 1979 in Lexington, Massachusetts, we have a worldwide fellowship of churches of every race, ethnicity, creed, most languages, not all. But I mean, we are truly a global fellowship. And if you go into many of our fellowships, they're mixed culturally, racially, ethnically. It's pretty awesome. And when we first did that, that was not the norm in American churches. American churches were still primarily segregated. To our credit, we've moved forward and we have much more integration and and people who are different, recognizing that we need to have the same mind and figure out how to love one another in Christ. But it was not that way back in the Stone Ages in 1982 when I first started coming around. And I'm dating myself a little bit. You millennials and Gen Zers are laughing at me. But in 82, that was a radical thing that you had uh, people worshiping together who were ethnically and culturally different. So that's where we were. But what has God revealed to us now? Well, now it's time to take another step. We are still struggling within our fellowship and within our country and within individual congregations and within our communities, friends and guests. We need your help, too. We're struggling with how to deal with racism. Protests around the world demanding social justice gave voice to the oppressed. The world, the not, not the church, people outside of churches spoke more radically against racism and more boldly against it than the church did. They said racism is not kind. It is wrong to dishonor and be rude to people. It is selfish. We can't hate one another. We can't hold grudges. We got to rejoice with each other, protect each other and persevere. That did not come from the church. That came from the community at large and particularly uh, to their credit. Black Lives Matter pushed that agenda globally and it caught fire. My generation was called baby boomers. We were called to give account to Gen Zers and millennials of how we tolerated this separate racist, bigoted society for so long. Well, you live in a room that smells like gas long enough, you forget that the room smells like gas. And never been so proud of my young people to see them out there protesting peacefully, not the ones that were 
violent, acting a fool, but peacefully because they wanted to make a difference and recognize that we need to love one another and have the same mind. That's the biblical backdrop for this discourse in which I'm embarking upon. Currently, some of our ministries are actively anti-racist and outspoken about it and outspoken about systemic racism and focusing and trying to make a difference and trying to make a change. Others in our churches and other churches don't feel we should be involved in politics. This is a political issue. How do we bridge this gap? And I'm addressing it directly because this is not new. Act, go to book of Acts. It was Jew versus Gentile. Jew versus Samaritan. This is not new. This issue is as old as mankind, probably definitely as old as the church because it's written into the first century church. How do we bridge this divide? How do we get to having the same mind? What should we do as individuals based on what God has revealed? And why do I say God revealed it? Because it's global. It's in your face. The murder of George Floyd. No one could deny that that was evil. It was wrong. It was ugly. People were appalled. And so now it's in our face. What do we do? I want to call us to the cross of Jesus. Luke nine verses 23 and 24. Then he said to them all, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. Notice the cross sacrifice. Lay down your life. That's what Jesus called us to. Now discipleship becomes real. It, be, it moves from, OK, great. I'm a nice Christian. I come. I pay my tithe. I'm a good person. I got a good job and I try to give to people. But are you anti-racist? Are you anti-racist? Not are you a good person? Are you anti-racist? OK, let me flip it. Are you bitter over racism? See, that's sinful, too. Neither one of those is good. James 417. Give you some more scripture. Anyone then who knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it sins. Hey, we know racism is wrong. It is good that we oppose it. If we don't oppose it, it's sinful. And it doesn't matter if it's the oppressor hating the oppressed or the oppressed hating the oppressor. Both are wrong. And we're called to love. Romans 12, 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. It's a high calling. It's a challenge. But this is what the cross calls us to. And I'm specifically applying it to the notion of race and systemic racism within our country in honor of Black History Month. But this is as old as the Bible itself. So here's our cross, the uncomfortable truth. Systemic racism exists in America. We've got to take personal responsibility to eliminate it and self-sacrifice and self-denial. Be anti-racist. Love always. Protect. Oppose it. Let me share a little bit about a challenge that I'm having personally, because I don't stand here as somebody that's got it all figured out. I'm here as somebody that is working on this, too. So um, I have a good friend of mine, brother in the church, a white brother, been friends for a while. We just get together, hang out. After George Floyd was murdered, we had a conversation about race and he said some things I thought were a little insensitive. And I asked him, I said, well, hey, are you open to, you know, me educating you a little bit about my experiences and experiences of black Americans in this country? He was very offended that I would 
say that to him. He, he just was really offended by it. But then within that same there was a text stream going back and forth. He proceeded to send me a bunch of articles that from my paradigm were bigoted and racist and really offensive. And he didn't just send that to some random person. He sent it to me. This is my friend. He knows how hard I work. He knows my life. He knows the things I've done. Yet he sent that to me. And honestly, made me really angry. And I'm 5'8", 180 now. I used to be 170, but 5'8", 180. But I can be tough as nails when I need to be. And I let him know that I didn't really appreciate it. But, you know, as I've been thinking it over, my challenge is how do I love this brother, even though we have such a different mind on this particular issue? That's my personal challenge. And so I've done some different things in my mind. One thing I decided I'm to try to think of the person I would most likely not agree with. And whatever my paradigm is, I've got to make sure I have a path to love that individual. So honestly, my friend and I don't talk much. Uh, I pray for him some. I've got to pray for him a lot more. But I take this challenge personally. This is an area where I have to grow. Uh, the murder of George Floyd was an eye opener for me. Uh, it exposed that I tolerated things that I, I should not have tolerated. It, it hurt me deeply, but it also challenged me to grow in my love. To grow in my love, even as I advocate for justice and change. But see, you can't advocate for justice and change in one area, but then be sentimental in others. So just like I advocate for social justice and anti-racism, I also have a conviction that abortion is sin before God. That's my conviction. I know it's controversial, but I'm going to say it. Now, does that mean I judge people who are different than me? No. I'm commanded by God to love them. Have I figured it all out? No. But here's what I accept. I must love as Jesus did, even when I'm challenged. And so I want to joke a little bit. So uh, I've been thinking about it a lot. And I want to quote the immortal Negro poet George Clinton, who said, we've done so much for so long with so little. We are now qualified to do the impossible with nothing. Why do I quote that jokingly? Because God, through the power that raised Jesus from the dead, can help me find a way to love my brothers and sisters deeply from the heart, even as we work toward unity. To love people who would spitefully use me, even as we work toward unity. To advocate forcefully for my view, but to love people even as we work toward unity. That's what made Dr. King so powerful. He forcefully advocated for what he knew was right, but he called us to imitate the love of Christ. That's what I plan to do, brothers and sisters, friends and guests. I'd like to call you to do the same. So we got to be gracious and patient with those who would hurt us and use us. We've got to advocate aggressively for change. We've got to engage in active conversations. But we have to do it with gentleness and respect. So I've got a couple of closing thoughts. You know, I don't get to preach much and I've got like an hour worth of notes left to go through. But I want to leave you with just a few thoughts. First and foremost, we define what love and harmony are. The Bible's very clear. We need to love as Jesus did. And the Bible lays out what love is. I don't pick the ones that I excel in. I pick the parts of love that are weaknesses for me. And I try to work on those. So we're called to love one another and to work hard to have the same mind. So we defined love 
and we defined harmony. If we're truly going to be brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of Christ, or if we're wrestling with whether or not we want to believe Christianity, you know, I can tell you, uh, for those of you considering following Jesus, it's not an easy walk, but it's an awesome walk. Uh, I've been married 37 years. I have friends all over the world of different races. We have meaningful conversations. It's changed my life. I've grown spiritually. And if I persevere, I get to go to heaven. It doesn't get much better than that. I want to appeal to you to join us in this struggle called life to make a difference for the cross of Christ. We've got to live up to what we've already attained. I'm proud of my brothers and sisters. We we, we have to keep going, y'all. We can't stop, even though it's getting difficult. But we also have to accept what God has revealed. We've got a long way to go. Hatred and evil, racism, it's bearing fruit in America. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and many others have been murdered unjustly. God has now revealed to the entire world that that's evil. We have to oppose it, brothers and sisters. We've got to be anti-racist. It's the right thing to do before the Lord. We've got to act and we've got to have dialogue where we think differently. You know, my friend and I, I don't know how much dialogue we can have, but here's my commitment to you. So today, JPL, where I work, we landed on Mars. So that's how we can mark the day. Ask me in a month how much I prayed for my friend. I'm to pray for him. But we've got to have dialogue in areas where we think differently because we want to have one mind. God is gracious, merciful and faithful. We have hope for eternal life. We even have hope for this world. We've come a long way from where we were, but we've still got a long way to go. Let's love one another and strive for harmony. To God be the glory. Amen. You've just listened to the Metro LA podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit MetroLARegion.com.